0: Bokotov, good morning. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. It is a brand new week. It's a brand new day. It uh, is a brand new beginning. It's a, a brand new start to life and to godliness. Glad that you're with me, watching from across the fruited plain. So glad to have you uh, with us as we start a brand new parasha on the book of Numbers, Parasha Hukat. And uh, this is going to begin in chapter 19 and verse uh, 1. If you have the art scroll, Humash, we are on uh, page 839 and uh, the book of Bar. This parasha is going to, or the first chapter of the parasha, I should say, is going to be dealing with the red cow, the red heifer, the infamous red cow. And we're going to be discussing this uh, uh, offering, as it were, this, uh, this hukah, and discuss what this means and some issues around it, as we typically do. So, again, welcome to the first Aliyah. Hope that you're having a beautiful day. Hope that you had a beautiful Shabbat. I know that we did, and we look forward to the future uh, Sabbaths as well. Baruch Hashem. So, Without further ado, chapter 19, verse 1. Here we go. Adonai spoke to Moshe and to Aaron, saying, This is the decree of the Torah, which Adonai has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and they shall take to you a completely red cow, which is without blemish, and upon which a yoke has not come. You shall give it to Eleazar the Cohen.'" He shall take it to the outside of the camp, and someone shall slaughter it in its presence. Eliezer the Cohen shall take some of its blood with its forefinger, and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Someone shall burn the cow before his eyes, its hide, its flesh, its blood. With its dung shall he burn. The Cohen shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson thread, and he shall throw them into the burning of the cow. Verse 7. The Cohen shall immerse his clothing and immerse himself in water, and afterwards he may enter the camp, and the Cohen shall remain contaminated until evening. The one who burns it shall immerse his clothing and immerse himself in water, and he shall remain contaminated until evening. A pure man shall gather the ash of the cow and place it outside the camp in a pure place. For the assembly of Israel, it shall remain a safekeeping for water, for sprinkling, and uh, uh, excuse me, it is for purification. The one who gathered the ashes of the cow shall immerse himself in clothing, immerse his clothing and remain contaminated until evening. It shall be for the children of Israel and for the proselyte who dwells among them as an eternal decree. The word eternal means forever. Uh, Verse 11, whoever touches the corpse of any human being shall be contaminated for seven days. He shall purify himself with it, and on the third day, and on the seventh day, then he will become pure. But if he will not purify himself on the third day, and on the seventh day, he will not become pure. Whoever touches the dead body of a human being who will have died and will not have purified himself, if he shall have contaminated If he shall have contaminated the tabernacle of of Adonai, that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water of sprinkling has not been thrown upon him. He shall remain contaminated. His contamination is still upon him. This is the teaching regarding a man who would die in a tent. Anything that enters the tent and anything that is in the tent shall be contaminated for seven days. Any open vessel that has no cover fastened to it is contaminated. On the open field anyone who touches one slain by the sword or one that died or a human bone or a grave shall be contaminated for seven days. They shall take for the contaminated person some of the ashes of the burning of the purification animal and put a, upon it spring water in a vessel. so end of the uh, first reading of the Aliyah. So this uh, portion we just read is talking about the ashes of the red heifer that we mix with water and we put in there cedar wood, as I said, hyssop and chrism thread. And this mixture becomes the solution with which uh, one becomes purified for the purposes of entering into the tabernacle and being able to commune, as it were, with Hashem. This is why that the prevailing orthodox belief, and it's not universal, but the the prevailing orthodox belief is that we cannot and should not ascend to the Temple Mount in Yerushalayim because the entire Temple Mount is considered uh, sanctified, holy. Uh, The Temple does not have to exist on the Temple Mount in order for the Temple to be sanctified. As a result, a Jewish person is not allowed to go up there. Why? Because we don't have the ashes of the red heifer sprinkled upon us. And the reality is, is that every uh, single person who is alive today uh, would require to have the ashes of the red heifer sprinkled upon us so that we could enter into uh, into the Temple Mount area. Because all of us have been defiled uh, in some way. You could say, well, perhaps there's a person out there who's never been to a funeral, who's never touched a dead body, uh, who's never uh, you know been into a cemetery, anything like that. Well, the problem with that is that outside the land of Israel... The halakha is, is that you don't know because it's, uh, the sages pointed out long ago that it was the habit and the custom of the non-Jews to not necessarily bury their people with, to, or, uh, with markers. So you could be walking across a grave or come in contact with a dead body or something like that and not even realize it. This is why someone was asking me last night some questions about the, um, uh, uh, na- the Nazarite vow. And we were. I was explaining to them that in reality, in theory, if you were a Nazarite, if you took upon yourself the Nazarite t- uh, vow today, you would have to be a Nazarite in perpetuality, in other words, for the rest of your life. But in reality, you really can't uh, be a Nazarite outside the land of Israel even today. Why? Because the sages explained that back in antiquity when the temple existed and people would come to the Holy Land and they would say... Uh, you know, I, I've I've been a Nazarite. Let's say for for ten years. I've been a Nazarite for ten years. I've been living in Spain, and so I'm ready to end my Nazarite vow. And the rabbis would say, Well, actually, since you were living outside the land of Israel, we don't know, and you don't know if you've ever walked across a grave because the Gentiles don't necessarily, uh, back in antiquity anyway, they didn't necessarily mark the graves. So you 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 don't you have no idea if you've been in a cemetery or not. So since you're in the land of Israel, mazal tov, you're going to have to. Fulfill your vow in its entirety here in the land, which means another 10 years. All that to say that we all require the ashes of the Red heifer. There's no one who is excluded. The word hukah or huk, hukim, is a word that depicts a Torah law that has no seemingly rational uh, understanding. Some of the Torah laws have a rationality to them, right? It's, we shouldn't murder, clearly. We shouldn't steal, that, that's obvious. We should be kind to our parents, okay, of course. Uh, you don't work, you don't eat. That was a large part of, of the message yesterday brought down uh, by the Midrash Rabbah to our commentary to uh, Parashat Eka, um, uh, which, uh, to, just to, to touch back on that for a second, the, the rabbis were saying that the, a, a person in their youth uh, should be involved with Torah. Uh, should get a job and then uh, be married, get married. And uh, the point being is, is that uh, the, all of those things are easierly easier done when you're younger rather than older. And somebody said Amen to that. Um, and so, therefore, don't delay it. Don't put it off. But but arise to those things with alacrity. And so some of those laws we have, and many of them make perfect sense. Sometimes, uh, technically the kashrut laws are hukim. Technically the, the kashrut laws are laws that don't make a lot of sense. Um, why is a rabbit, for instance, not kosher, but a chicken is kosher? Well, one could say, well, the rabbit is a, is a, uh, a rodent, you know, basically very cute rodent. But uh, the chicken, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is, is chickens aren't necessarily any more clean in, in terms of their lifestyle than a rabbit is. Now, some some things we can rationalize. We can say, well, you know, shrimps are uh, full of uh, toxins. Same thing with mussels or whatever. Crabs are essentially, uh, they're not essentially, they are in the spider family. They're just simply water spiders is all a crab is. So well, that makes sense, right? But for the most part, those are considered hukim. Bottom line is this. There are some laws, this being the quintessential one, that don't make any sense at all. Which teaches us a valuable lesson, which we're going to get to in just a second in more detail, which is that we do not follow the Torah necessarily because it makes sense. And sometimes... uh, Torah laws go against our sensibilities. They go against, sometimes, not always, but sometimes they go against our personal experiences and maybe even our personal preferences. There are some laws that we would rather not be there because it it infringes on on what we think is right, maybe, or what we think is is wrong, uh, uh, wrong, that should be right, or vice versa, right? But the bottom line, the question put to us is, are we going to follow God's laws because they're God's laws, or are we going to try to insert our understanding? Because the reality is, if we follow God's laws only because they make sense to us, and if they don't make sense to us, or we don't agree with them, we're going to disregard them, or if we have the attitude of, I will obey as soon as I understand. All of that, my friends, is a form of idolatry. And I submit that it's the worst form of idolatry. And the answer is that uh, it's the worst form of idolatry because we become the deity. Whenever we tell God, you know what, I don't really understand this, it doesn't make sense to me, therefore I'm not going to do it, that, my friends, is where we have uh, Hasve Shalom pushed God off the throne and we've taken his seat. And now we're going to subject his will and his desire and his wisdom to our own. Which is why one of the reasons this is this whole thing starts out where it says, It says here, this is the decree of the Torah. And again, we're going to elaborate on this in just a moment, but there's a reason why, because everything in the Torah has a reason. Everything that's written down has a reason. There there is a reason why it says, Zot Kat HaTorah. This is the decree of the Torah. Why? It's not necessarily talking about the red cow uh, mitzvah, but rather... The hook, the idea that God has commandments that we are obliged to follow be, even when we don't understand them and we can't understand them, does not negate the fact that we are submitted to them. And this is, as it says, this is the very decree of the Torah that we follow God no matter what. And what has? Messed people up theologically, more than anything, is this idea of the need to approve of the mitzvot. The seeming need that it has to make sense to us. Um, The idea that, that God's word has to be, and I love this one, air quote, relevant to us. As if it's all about us. As if we, you know, really think about th- think about that. You know, I want God. I need God's word to be relevant to my life. That is a. Com- I, I understand, you know, where that comes from psychologically, but but to play into that is so harmful because it now instead of. Encouraging us to mold our life to the word of God, we now want to mold God's word to our life. We change the order. Instead of God being the center of our universe, now we're the center of our universe and we want God to revolve around us. So we demand God, I need your word to be relevant for my life. And we forget that we were sent here for his mission, not ours. What is our life anyway? Our life is to be dedicated to him. Everything that we're doing is supposed to be dedicated to the mission that he's called us to. And when we say, God, I want your word to be relevant to my life, what we're saying is that my life is somehow something I've made independent of you and I need you to, if you're going to enter my space, I need you to make sure that you're relevant to my space. Versus the idea of (laughs) my life is nothing without you and therefore I need to be in your space and I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to make my life relevant to you. And this is an important mindset, and it also works for great, great wonders in removing from our, our psyche this self-centered approach to life where everything is about us. The more, by the way, and, and what I'm telling you is, is a philosophy that's been shared by many people that are great at teaching leadership and so on. The more that you can make your life about others, the happier you're going to be. The more that you can be a servant, a servant leader, obviously Mashiach taught this, this is, this is part and parcel with the Word of God and Torah law, but the more that you can serve others, the happier you're going to be. We talked a great deal in the drosh, and then, uh, well, in the Drash about tithing. If you want to be a happy person, be, become a tither. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? I'm gonna. How can I be happy giving my money away? That's what you're called to do. And so what bo- the bottom line is we're all called to serve, and therefore when we are operating in our calling, that's when we're happy. And people that are greedy are not happy people. People that are tight-fisted and stingy are not happy people. So if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, marry a good wife and tie. There you go. That's, that's not the lyrics to the song, but I've just changed them. So it says here, the underlying message of all of the above, as well as the many other mysteries of the Torah, is that the supreme intelligence has granted man a huge treasury of spiritual and intellectual gifts, but none is more precious than the knowledge that God is infinite, both in existence and in wisdom, while man is as limited in his ability to comprehend as he is in his physical existence. As Rabbi Yochanan told his students regarding our failure to understand the laws of the red cow. It is not the corpse that causes contamination or the ashes of the cow that cause purity. These laws are decrees of God and man has no right to question them. This this comes from the Midrash Rabbah. In In other words, an essential component of wisdom is the knowledge that man's failure to understand truth does not make it untrue. Let me read that again because that is so, so critical. An essential... Perhaps the essential component of wisdom is this. Man's inability, his failure to understand truth, does not make truth untrue. Whether or not something is true or not is, is not dependent upon our personal understanding. we we could use the, the age-old analogy of gravity. Gravity is true, and if you jump off the edge of the Grand Canyon, you will plummet most likely to your death. And whether or not you understand that concept or not is completely irre- irrelevant to the reality of its truth. And so... We live in an age an, an information age where everything we have we have to understand everything, and we have instant um we have instant uh, contact if we want to learn something, it used to be back in the old day i can in fact, I can't even really remember what it used to be like, because as many of you, I lived in an era before there was ever such thing as the internet, before there was ever such thing as a cell phone, especially a smartphone. I remember the days of the Dewey Decimal System, going down to the library, opening up the little drawer, flipping through the cards, going to the reference section. I used to spend a lot of time in the library. And uh, do they even have libraries anymore? They do, I'm kidding. But the point being is that I, I remember those days before there was any such thing. We thought the Commodore 64 computer was amazing. Today, it's like a dinosaur. In fact, they have it at the museum, at the Museum of Natural History, next to the dinosaur. And so anyway, nowadays, you can just Google something. You have a question, just Google it. You can Google it on your phone. In fact, you don't even have to do that. You can just say, Siri, tell me about this. Hey, Google. So anyway, but we live in this age where we want to know everything, uh, and we have to uh, be knowledgeable about everything. And so the ability to come back and say, look, whether or not I understand something or not it doesn't make it untrue is a quintessential aspect of wisdom because it identifies our humility and our submission to God. So a hukla is a is a is a divine a legal decree, without any rational explanation. Okay, without any rational explanation, he says God. This is from, by the way, this is from the uh, Kehol Tumash Introduction to. The power show. I just want to read a few lines here. It said, God does not appeal to all, uh, excuse me, God does not appeal at all to our sense of reason in asking us to observe these rules. To observe them, we must invoke our super rational connection to God, our commitment to follow his instructions implicitly, whether they speak to our mortal sense of logic or not. This idea is uh, allied with the more fundamental meaning of the word hukah, which means, literally means chiseling or engraving. There are certain reasons why, by the way, there was the, the Ten Statements, commonly known as the Ten Commandments, they, the reason they were engraved on tablets of stone. Um, the, the Sabbath being one of those commandments engraved Uh, in this this stone, which being engraved is different than being um, ink on a page, as we're about to learn. It says, A letter chiseled into a block of stone is part and parcel of that stone. It's one with the stone, not a second entity grafted onto it, as is the case with a letter written in ink or parchment or paper. So obviously when you write something in ink on a piece of paper, the ink is a separate entity from the paper, even though they are bonded together. Not so with a with an engraving and engraving is, is part of the stone itself. So it says Le uh, Futu The engraved letter cannot be erased from the stone, at least not without wearing away the stone itself. The connection between the letter and the stone is, is, is permanent, immutable. As such, it is the perfect metaphor for the level of relationship with God invoked by observing his quote-unquote irrational rules or irrevocable connection with him, which transcends and overrides any consideration of logic. We have to ask ourselves, are we ink on a page with God or are we engraved with him? Because if we're ink on the page, then that means that at any time that we come across a halakha that we don't really agree with or, or really strikes us wrong or um, messes with our sensibilities, as I said before, or our personal experiences, we're, we're, we, we take a step back and say, huh, I wonder if I should pull the object button now. I agree with 99% of what God has said, but this one, I don't know. I just can't. I'm having trouble with it. I'm thinking about it pulling the ejection button. no. The person has to be engraved with God, that we're 99% on board, we hear a halakha, they're like, oh man, I wish that wasn't in there, but oh well, it is, so there I am following it. That's how we have to be with God, because it's not left up to our understanding. Now, why does a corpse, why does a human corpse produce uh, impurity? This will be our, probably our last comment for today, most likely. And then we'll, there's some other things we want to share, um, but we might have to do that tomorrow. So it says, this is the rule of the Torah. As we have seen previously, it says here, the death is the antithesis of holiness. You know, we're supposed to live forever. Our physical bodies were designed by God to live forever. Um, I've read in years past, scientific studies and what have you that the human body produces new cells I think every day if I'm not mistaken we're supposed to we're designed to produce brand new organs like every seven years or something like that and the, the fact of the matter is the scientists still to this day do not know why we age and we can put coconut oil on our skin oil of oil A, we can put uh we can we can eat all the uh organic apples uh and all the organic uh whatever blueberries we can take all of the powdered vegetable mix we can take everything like that and we are still going to age now i'm not bashing any of that we should live as healthy as possible so that we can live as long as possible and uh ladies the oil of aloe and the uh, coconut oil on your faces uh, does amazing. Looks wonderful. Having said that, we're still going to we're still going to age, right? Um. So it says here, death is the antithesis of holiness. For God is the source of life and vitality. Thus, any connection with death or potential death produces tumah to a tumay. This is why nobody can stay dead around Yeshua. Yeshua, as he said, I am the resurrection of the life. That's why every time he came in contact with somebody who had died, they sprang to life again. Why? Because he's the source of life. Anyway, since so the ritual defilement that excludes the individual from entering the tabernacle or later the temple, the realm of holiness and divine vitality, when confronted with the reality of death, we become exposed to the contagious influence of the law of entropy, which is the natural reality that everything is decaying, dying, headed towards the vi- obliviation, oblivion, excuse me, and that life is futile and meaningless. That's why, as I said in a previous Aliyah, why the woman who gives birth is considered impure for a time and has to bring a, a, an offering, and a sin offering, and so on. Because... That that seemingly doesn't make any sense. Why uh, the birth of a human being is a great joy. It's a great blessing. We pray for it. We believe God for women to be able to conceive and so on. So why are we treating this as something bad that's happened? Well, the problem is, is that the moment the baby is born, it begins its path towards death. That is a very brutal and very um, challenging mindset, but it is a reality, So it says, this depressing worldview results in a spiritual paralysis and unwillingness or inability to act positively and is therefore diametrically opposed to our divine mission which asserts that there is purpose to life and affirms that fulfillment is indeed possible. So to come in contact with death is to come in contact with a reality that is actually opposed to the original divine intent. Death is a result of sin. We were never meant to die. So in order to regain entry into the realm of pure life, the individual must undergo a purification process which serves to cure his depression and reorient him towards the enthusiasm and vitality of holiness. So when we go to the mikveh, we, um, we, we receive the ashes of the red heifer. heifer. We're reorienting our understanding because when we come in contact with death, when you go to a funeral, for instance, or you go to a cemetery, you're confronted with this stark realization that you are on and I am on. And every human being, everyone who's ever lived and everyone who ever will live, they're destined to die. It's a, we have it in our minds sometimes that we're going to live forever in this age, in this realm but it's not true. And when we come in contact with that, it releases upon us a depression. And so going through these rituals of purity that God has given us, it it revitalizes and refocuses our mentality and our, our soul to the reality of life. So to, to continue this um, Paragraph here as we conclude. It says, All the varieties of defilement in the Torah and their corresponding purification rites can be understood in terms of their relative proximity to death. Clearly, though, the most fundamental form of defilement is the absolute, unmitigated uh, uh, apparition of death itself, that is, a lifeless human corpse. Because this form of defilement is the source of all others, its purification rite is the most extreme and mysterious in the entire Torah. As we said, the law of nature indeed decrees that sooner or later everything and everyone succumbs to death. To defy this law is to defy logic and therefore the right of purification of death hails from a level of existence that defies logic itself. That is a rule or a hook. A seemingly arbitrary expression of God's will devoid of any rationality and even contravening logic altogether. So, this phraseology of this verse which says that this is a rule, or not a rule, but excuse me, the rule of the Torah, that although there are other rules, only this one defies logic absolutely. So, the reason that a corpse uh, brings impurity is not so much about the corpse itself. In other words, it's not about bacteria, it's not about viruses, it's not about uh, contamination or what have you. But it's about the spiritual and psychological contamination of the realities of death. That we have to come back to Hashem and receive His purification to put our mindset back and have a renewed focus on life. This is why Yeshua said, I've came to, to give you life and life more abundantly. Then, In other words, that even though we're all facing death, we can transcend the logic of that reality with the understanding that we are serving a God of life and we will enter into the Alam haba through His purification. Well, thank you for joining me. That's the end of our Aliyah today. I pray that you should have a wonderful day, a blessed day. With God's help, we will be back tomorrow for the uh, second Aliyah and a continued discussion of this uh, Mitzvah of the Red Cow. Shalom, blessings, have a great, wonderful day.